Take your Bibles and turn with me yet one more time to 2 Thessalonians as we today complete our study of this important uh, letter in the New Testament. Uh, Page 960 is where we will be, but I'm going to ask you for a moment to go back to the beginning of the letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2. Paul began his letter saying, Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Now jump to our final passage in chapter 3. Looking for those two terms, grace and peace. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Grace and peace. I wonder if the deepest personal struggles of humanity could be boiled down to basically two issues. Shame and anxiety. Shame about the past. Anxiety about the future. Shame is the if-onlys. If only I hadn't done that. If only I hadn't made that decision. If only that hadn't happened. And we carry that shame. But not only is it the what-ifs, or it's the uh, if-onlys, it's the what-ifs of the anxieties, the future. What if, what if that happens? What if this happens? And we, we fear and we, we worry. If you came in with some shame or anxiety, you are like probably everybody else here. Because we all carried some in with us. But the good news of the New Testament is that Jesus Christ offers to his family of faith. He offers us grace for our shame and peace for our anxiety. It doesn't get any better than that. Grace for our shame and peace for our anxieties. These are God's rich blessings to his family. These are family truths today. He's writing to believing friends in Thessalonica, first century, and to us today. It's very likely that as you came to faith in Christ, maybe the number one issue was, I want to know what happens when I die. I want eternal life. True, great, that's what the cross accomplished. You put your faith in Christ, you will live forever with Christ. But did you know what's all in the benefit package? Because there is grace and there is peace. Um, we're going to take him in that order, uh, more like his greeting. Our, our final passage just says peace and then grace, but the beginning is grace and then peace. It's, it's like grace is the bookends of this letter. Um, grace to you, he begins, grace to you. Um, grace was a greeting 
that was a common greeting. There was, a, there was this uh, Greek term that everybody used. It wasn't just a Christian term. Karine. Karine was like greetings. Karine. And uh, Paul, in fact, used it when he wrote a letter that's recorded in Acts 23 to Felix. Greetings. Karine. Felix. But Paul always, in addressing believers, used charis. Charis. My granddaughter's name is Charis. The, the grace word pointed more specifically to God's grace. It was that undeserved favor, undeserved goodness, undeserved kindness of God based on the work of Christ on the cross. Grace. And so in this final verse, verse 18, end of the book, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all is essentially a prayer. Do you, do you almost hear Paul's emotion or heart through that? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I want you to experience the grace and care of God. The grace of... Each of these little terms seems to be significant. Grace of our Lord Jesus. Do you see how personal that is? May the grace of our Lord Jesus. Because to, to Paul, grace was always personal because Paul thought about his past and his shame. Because before he came to faith in Christ, Paul had been a persecutor, an enemy of Christ and, the, and, and Christians. And so he just never quite got over the grace of God for him. The grace of our Lord Jesus, to think that he went from an enemy to being a child of God. Whoever believes in his name has the right to be called children. Our Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. In fact, the, the little term all in, in the Greek language is a little bit more the word each. In other words, not just all y'all, y'all kind of a seven thing, you know. It is, it is like each of you all. It's like he's looking through the group and going, you, 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 you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be personally with each of you. And then even the term with, a little preposition. How is, how is something so amazing as grace with you. There's a sense in which he's saying, I hope you are just surrounded with a constant awareness of the grace of God. That you, you, that's, that's like the air around you. May the grace of our Lord Jesus be, be with you. Grace, the grace of Jesus Christ should not just be what we experience and think about when we walk into this room. Not even just when we open our Bibles. Not just when we have communion or something. But rather that the grace of our Lord Jesus is how we process life. Undeserved. I am, I am myself fully unworthy before God, but I am fully loved by him in spite of it. If you ever meet a Christian that you say, that person really exudes grace, you can be sure that they are thinking about grace a lot. They're immersed in it themselves. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ always points us to the source of grace, the cross. Paul uses grace uh, as, as a very 
exhaustive description of the whole Christian life, but the first aspect of it is positional grace. We use that term sometimes because positional grace is that which transformed you from an unbeliever to a believer, brought you into the family. It's like the starting point. And so let's look at, actually there's a great passage that we'll look at both in terms of grace and peace. Look at these two terms in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have, here it is, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We have a grace status. We have a grace uh, position. There is peace with God. We'll get to that, which is crazy wonderful because God so hates sin. It's, it's amazing that we could be at peace with God when you think of how a holy God so hates sin. But we do have peace with God. How? Because we've been justified by faith. Little review. Justification means that when we put our faith in Christ, God declares us righteous eternally. There's like the status transformation. Uh, justified does not mean that we have promised to reform our life and sin a little less but rather it is that God has declared our account clear, wiped clean, and, and we are residents, citizens of heaven. We're citizens of heaven, just not yet residents of heaven. The cross is the only thing standing between you and hell. That's all there is. We go from condemned to pardoned. The only thing in our favor is Jesus and the cross. Now we have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We have full access into God's warehouse of grace. At the foot of the cross, we get, we get like the pass card into a lifetime of grace. Over the holidays, I went to go work out at the Y one time, and uh, it wasn't open because they had some special holiday hours and closing and whatever, and I go... Yeah, I'm all ready to go in there, and it's closed. And I thought I, I thought I got a notice that they were open 24/7, so they should be open, right? They go to the door, and there's a little card I never read. It says you have to get a fob, and if you get the fob, then you can access it 24/7. So the next day, I went there, and you pay ten dollars, and you get the fob, and and now I have access to the Y 24/7. The cost to have access into the grace in which we now stand is the cross. There is only one who could pay that price. Only Christ by his death on the cross could pay for us to have access. And it is by faith. So when we put our faith in Christ that he died for our sins, we get the entrance fob into God's grace. And the first aspect of that is positional grace, our status is transformed from, from condemned to forgiven. It is all settled in heaven. But what we sometimes forget is that we also have access 24-7 for the rest of our life into the grace that we will need because our need was not only to have grace to get us to heaven, but we as believers now need grace relationally. We received grace positionally. We also need it relationally day by day by day because we are still sinners. 
we still sin. If you are breathing, you sin. Relational grace is what begins to handle our fears and our doubts. Many Christians, probably all Christians at some point, have that fear-doubt thinking. Even though they have placed their faith in Christ, I wonder if I'm saved. Sin can create that doubt because here's how it works. As believers, we, we sin, and because we sin, we experience guilt. And there's a reality and there's a true sense of guilt. So sin creates, creates guilt, but if we don't have a good understanding of grace, then that guilt becomes shame, and that shame becomes doubt. And we suddenly question our positional grace. And so we have to go back to our positional grace to say, no, I know that I am saved. That is an unwarranted fear because my position in Christ remains unchanged in spite of sin because of my positional grace. But the reason we go down that trail of sin, guilt, shame, and doubt is because we maybe have not been using the 24-7 access into the relational grace of God. And for that, a great description is from the Apostle John in 1 John 1. There is continual forgiveness to continually restore our fellowship with Christ. John wrote, and he's writing to believers. Never, never misunderstand the book of 1 John. He's writing not to see if we are saved, but he's writing to those who are saved about our fellowship. Are you walking in fellowship with Christ? Okay? So if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we, believers, have fellowship with one another. And the, 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 the reference here is vertical fellowship. We can have fellowship with God. A sinful person like me can have fellowship with a holy God day by day if we walk in the light. And how is that possible? Well, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. That's the daily kind of purification. That's an ongoing, that's the relational purification. So the same blood that saved us so that we would have a new position eternally in heaven is the same blood, sacrifice, the cross, that is cleansing us day by day. So if we walk in the light, we can have that continual cleansing. But verse 8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if, if we claim, oh, it's, not that, it's not that serious, it's not that bad, I'm not really much of a sinner then we're not going to have this freedom. But on the other hand, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That is the ongoing relational grace that we are totally needing. So don't defend or deflect or deceive yourself by trying to hide sin. Step one is to walk in the light. Walking in the light essentially means Expose to God that which God already knows. But it's us coming clean and saying, Lord, I realize this is sin. Hiding nothing. We will only appreciate the grace of God to the degree we are honest with God about our sin. The joy of fellowship depends upon our openness about our sin. Because if we claim to be without sin, deflecting, defending, we it's a path to misery. I'm a good girl, I'm a good husband, I'm not that immoral, I'm pretty honest. No, that's baloney. We must confess our sin, admit it to him, not to a priest, to him, and then it says he is faithful and just. Why is he faithful and right to forgive us? Because of the cross, because we have this relational access into grace.
And so when you see this verse, see the verse that, that we are, are, are forgiven, make sure you're understanding it's not the positional forgiveness, it's the relational forgiveness. And it's very humbling to be totally honest with God. But it's the only antidote to shame is to be completely open before God. Someone will probably wonder if, if the blood of Jesus just keeps cleansing us, isn't that going to promote more sin? That's exactly what Paul anticipated with this. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Why not just keep sinning if, if there's grace to cleanse us all the time, right? And he says, it's like you almost see him covering his head. <laughs> By no means. We are those who have died to sin. In other words, the, the, the sin no longer controls our destiny. So if we've died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? You know, a, a toddler falls into the mud, doesn't care, kind of enjoys it, and walks right back in again. It was so much fun. But as you mature and fall into the mud, you begin to notice this is really uncomfortable. This is a mess that's going to have to be cleaned up. And that thought process begins, I better avoid falling into mud puddles. And so the question is, as believers, are we toddlers? Or are we maturing believers? As we get more and more honest with God about the true ugliness of our sin, our sin begins to lose its appeal, its attractiveness. And then God's grace and cleansing is that more amazing. And in fact, it becomes our greatest motivation for holy living. Guilt will never transform us. Not long term. It can like shame us for a moment. But grace will transform us from within. To me, one of the saddest things that uh, I see too often by uh, Bible teachers uh, today, it seems like almost more than ever, is a, an attempt to motivate Christians to stop sinning by saying things like this. If you have very much sin at all, you're probably not saved. And there's no way of knowing how much sin would make you lose your assurance of salvation. You are sinning. You're still struggling with sin. You better ask yourself if you're saved. You know what, frankly, that sounds like something Satan would want us to believe. Because he's called the accuser of the brethren. I'm not saying there's not a time to wonder if someone truly has placed their faith in Christ, but it will not be determined by whether or not you're still struggling with sin because we are struggling with sin. So in our struggle, what we need is the confidence of our positional forgiveness, which will then be enjoyed in the relational forgiveness as we continually walk in the light. And so there is this unwarranted fear of grace that some have that, that would say, that if you talk about grace too much, it'll cause people to sin more instead of sin less. And in a way, that's true. It could. Because grace is risky. But here's the thing. That's God's risk. 
And God is the father who disciplines for sin. He disciplines those who are in his family. Just like I don't, you know, kids are growing up, I didn't discipline anybody else's kids, just my own. So Hebrews 5, uh, 12 says we, that God disciplines those he loves. So if you're afraid that talking about grace is going to be risky and people are going to want to sin more, you can trust that the Father knows how to discipline. He can handle the discipline. We need to personally be absorbed in the grace of God which begins to transform us. And we, we've, got to, we've got to get off of the mindset somehow that, that we're toddlers, that we just wait around, well, I didn't get disciplined this time, can I get by with it again? That's toddler thinking. The greatest motive, the most powerful motive for serving and obeying Christ is not guilt, but grace. Second Corinthians, for Christ's love compels us. Are you compelled by Christ's love for you? Only if you focus on the grace of God will you be compelled by his love. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and raised again. Who, who are you living for? Are you living for the one who died for you? Or this passage that Nate uh, read and commented on in our call to worship this morning. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It's, offered, it's forever. God so loved the world. And if you put your faith in Christ, it, grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Guilt doesn't teach you that. Grace does. The grace of God has appeared, and it teaches us. It awakens in us. The more we see God's grace for our sin, it, it awakens our own hatred of our own sin and implants in us a new desire for holiness. Um, let's just take a, a moment kind of for some spiritual exercise, okay? Just this is all inside your own heart and mind with, with, with the Lord. Bring to mind some sin struggle, sin habit in your life. Maybe the Holy Spirit's already done that. Something you long to overcome. It might be something that happened in the past but is continuing in the future. It's, it's this ongoing thing. Now, if you will, picture that all at the foot of the cross. It's forgiven. It's done. It's gone. It's, it's cleansed. You're thinking about the past, right? It's, it's forgiven. There's positional forgiveness. Now think about the future. Still fully aware that Christ has wiped out the guilt and shame to this very moment. And now think about the future. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness, worldly passions, live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. The more you understand your sin at the foot of the cross, the more motivated and even empowered you are to say no so that each time that sin, temptation, reappears in your life, even each time you might fail, the grace of God is going to teach you and, in fact, empower you. Um, God graciously, he, he's so in favor of your sanctification, your holiness, 
He not only motivates you with grace, he empowers you, though you don't deserve it. Hebrews 4, referring to Jesus being our high priest, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. That means he can empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. That's mind-boggling. So that Jesus, while here on earth, fully experienced temptation. Some say, well, he couldn't because he couldn't sin. No, he actually experienced temptation to a greater degree than any of us because he always fully resisted it. The, the sense of res, the, the, the tension of resisting sin disappears once you give in to that third piece of pie, right? You don't feel tempted at all anymore. Jesus always resisted. So he fully felt it. He understands that pressure of temptation. So, he says, let us then approach God's throne of grace. It's not a throne of guilt. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What time of need? The time when we are tempted, again, with that sin areas. The throne of grace. Throne implies authority. God ha Christ has the authority in our life, and it's a throne characterized by grace. He has the authority. He could condemn us, but he doesn't. It's a throne characterized by grace. So we go to the throne of grace. We go to the, to the, to the one who understands our weakness and say, Lord, I don't deserve help with this sin problem. But you are a God of grace. And just as I don't deserve your help and power for salvation, I can't earn my way to heaven. Also, I don't deserve your help and power to overcome this sin. And he will help. He doesn't help us with more condemnation. He doesn't help us by giving us more accusation. He doesn't help us by giving us more guilt and shame. He helps us because of his grace to help in time of need. Since I used the illustration of the YMCA, I'm just going to keep rolling with it. Planet Fitness, a little different. If I remember right, Planet Fitness had an a, a, a advertisement about no, the no judgment zone. Is that right? No judgment zone? Why does, that, why does that connect with people? Because if you are feeling judged, uh, It'll prevent you from getting the very exercise that you really need. So what, what if you went to a fitness center and the guy at the desk looked at you and said, you've obviously had too much pie, too much, uh, <laughs> too much potato chips. You're turning around, you're going right back out the door. So instead, because judgment never motivates, God's grace does. Paul says, it's done so much for me that by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. Grace isn't dormant. When we absorb ourselves in the grace of God, it's going to do something. What did it do for Paul? No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I. He won't even take credit for that, but the grace of God that was with me. So grace motivated me to do that which I would not otherwise have wanted to do for Christ. And not only that, when I began to act on that, then actually it was even grace. It was undeserved that he helped me to accomplish and do the things I do. So 
We have a life of grace. Grace, not judgment and guilt. Grace and peace to you. From God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ is how he began. And he ends the letter saying, Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now jump back up to verse um, 16 and 17. Uh, I did mean to uh, talk briefly about the uh, verse 17. Let's take verse 17. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. He's coming to the end of his letter, and he says, I want to explain something to you guys. I wrote this. Why would he have to say that? Because, go back to chapter 2, verse 2. There were some who were claiming that Paul wrote a letter he didn't write. Not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Uh, Some were saying that because Paul had taught about the rapture and the day of the Lord, some said, we're in the day of the Lord, and they just were completely twisting his thoughts and said, uh, they wrote a letter and said, Paul said this. And so Paul, (laughs) with this letter, says, I want to make it very clear, this is the letter I wrote. I didn't write that one. But I did write this one. I write this greeting with my own hand, the distinguishing mark in all of my letters. Um, so clearly Paul used a, what, a scribe, sometimes called an amanuensis, somebody else who actually did the writing when he was authoring, under inspiration, a letter. Paul used a scribe. And that enabled him to avoid that different officials and writers as a common practice, it enabled him to avoid that painstaking process of taking the reed or the quill and, and the, the, the papyrus, which is like an early form of paper, and holding that thing steady and writing all the letters and, or the parchment, the animal skin, whatever form they used. And so he could just focus on his thoughts, right? So that's how the rest of the letters were written, but he says... I signed it myself, kind of like you produce a letter and you print it off on the printer, but then you go back and you maybe use an actual signature. He says, this is my distinguishing mark. I want you to know this one is authentic. And he tucks that in there, right there between the peace and the grace. Verse 16, the Lord of peace. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. Did you know that in the Bible? Read it slowly. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. This this, this prayer. The Lord refers to Jesus. Jesus is the peace master. He's the master who gives peace. And the Thessalonian Christians surely had anxieties. One of their leaders, Jason, remember, had been uh, arrested, blamed for the uproar in the city actually caused by the enemies of Paul and of Christ. Lord of peace himself. It's personal. Jesus gives this peace. Let's go back once more to this uh, important passage that links peace and grace. And uh, talk again about positional peace, which is really eternal peace, but then what he's talking about here seems to be not just eternal peace, but internal peace. 
Okay? Let's start with external, or rather eternal peace. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith to this grace which we've talked about. We have peace. That means that we didn't have peace, but now we do have peace. A holy God cannot be at peace with sinful man unless something is done to fix the problem. And that's exactly what Christ came to do. He came to reconcile us. The key term is reconcile. That's what accomplished our peace. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's a believer who's put their faith in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, we're supposed to tell others about this. That God was, here's our message, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. So because of the cross, all that sin problem that stood between us, a holy God and a sinful man, the cross wiped that out. You put your faith in Christ and that wipes out the barrier, the, the hostility. The conflict is over because we've been reconciled. So positionally, we have been reconciled because Christ was the one who took our sin. God made, this just a couple of verses later, God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin in our place for us. So that in him, we might actually become the righteousness of God. So we go from our status as sinners to the status of righteous. This is the whole point of the justification, top line, chapter 5, verse 1. So, so we have this new status, the judge of the universe considers our sin debt fully satisfied. So positionally, we are at peace. He's not going anywhere. His love never fails and never gives up on us, right? We're his children. Why would Jesus have used... Why, why did Jesus use the, the birth illustration, you must be born again? Because of the permanent status that birth gives. Or we're adopted as sons, or we believe in him, we're called, you know, the right to be called children of God. You, you can't lose family status. So that's, that's positional peace, or we can call it eternal peace, but... That's the foundation for this second one, which is, now this verse that we're looking at is about internal peace. May the Lord of peace give you peace at all times and in every way. Jesus himself knows what causes anxiety for you. He knows what about your personality awakens those worries. He knows about your panic attacks. He knows you. The Lord himself, may he give you peace at all times. I'm not minimizing or pretending there's a simple fix. I'm not against other kinds of professional help. Um, I'm not trying to analyze why anxiety seems to be epidemic right now because I, prob I think probably, even if it wasn't called that, it's always been around. I'm pretty sure the Pioneers had a lot of anxiety. Little things like, will we survive winter? <laughs> will there be enough food? Uh, can we get to the doctor? But I don't think anxiety is new. But Paul prays that the Lord of peace, our Savior, would give his friends peace at all times, every way. This should be on a, this should be on a short list of verses that you might 
memorize and repeat back to the Lord in times of anxiety. Um, I think I could go a long way in bringing you peace. I confess I can be a worrier. There have been seasons in the past several decades of, of uh, issues, concerns, fears. Uh, awake in the night, I, these verses are, 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 are crucial to me. May he give you peace. He's not shocked that we have anxiety. And he wants to give us peace at all times in every way. So if some new thing has cropped up, all times, every way. If you've had chronic anxiety, all times, every way. If you, fear, if you have a fear of people, uh, or certain people, or talking to people, or meeting people, or all times, every way, may the God of peace. If your fear is that my spouse may die, you saw a mole in the mirror last week or something, all times, every way. Fear that you might uh, run out of money in, the re in retirement or lose your job or lose your house, all times, every way. Fear that we'll lose our freedoms in America. May the God of peace give you his peace at all times, every way. What if our fear is irrational? Theologically, every fear is irrational. If God is sovereign, Every fear is irrational. What if our fear is spiritual? And that, as true believers, you have that maybe that, that horrendous thought flit across your brain. Maybe God isn't real. Maybe the Bible isn't true. Maybe I'm not really saved, whatever it might be. And, 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 and may the Lord of peace give you peace at all times in every way. You go back to the positional peace, the eternal peace. He is our Savior. So, I would encourage you to take this very personally. May the Lord of peace himself. Peace is found in a person. I'd encourage you to, 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 to seek any help you can practically, whether it's friends, counselors, doctors, living more healthy, uh, reducing issues of stress, whatever it might be. But the bottom line is that our peace will come as believers from a person. May the Lord himself give you peace at all times and in every way. We talk about having a personal relationship with Christ. This is the time to practice it. It's, it's personal. And so Jesus knew that. The night before Jesus went to the cross was obviously a time of troubling of his own spirit, right? As Father, if it's possible this cup might pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. But in the midst of that evening, he cared about his disciples. And so in chapters uh, 14 through, through 16, he's having this conversation with his disciples. And one thing he says is, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you to you as the world gives. In other words, the world's going to offer substitute forms of peace, band-aids. No, I'm going to give you a different kind of peace. Let not your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. Later on, the same conversation. I've told you these things so that in me, Jesus, personally, in me, Jesus, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Amen. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So there's a very personal nature to the peace that he wants to give you, so that Paul would say, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. It's, it's a person.
And then how do we address our anxieties? So Paul, with some of my favorite verses of Philippians 6, Philippians 4. Number one, keep praying. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, in other words, uh, thanking the Lord for other issues that he's enabled us to endure or overcome or things that he's answered. Present your request to God. And here's the promise, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. So it is something different than a windfall that fixed it. You know, It's peace that transcends understanding, will guard your hearts, emotions, and your mind, your thinking in Christ Jesus. So keep praying, but that goes to the very next step, the next verse, which is you do need to choose and address your thinking. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So take, take a look at your thoughts and say, what am I dwelling on? Because we do choose our thinking. Or someone has said, our problem is our stinking thinking. So we choose what we think about, so pay attention to that evaluate whether your thoughts are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable. Ex- that's, a pretty, that's a pretty stringent list, isn't it? We, we own our thinking. And then as you begin to change your thinking, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So keep praying in the peace of God. Change, transform your thinking, and the peace of God will be ours. So when Paul began each letter, he wrote 13 letters, and every letter he greeted people by saying, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It was obviously very important. And at the end of every one of those 13 letters, Romans to Philemon, you can find some form of grace and peace. Um, It's a very, very big deal that we have grace for the shame of our past and we have peace for the anxieties of the future. And I'd like to just challenge you, if if you have a need for grace and peace, so does everybody else sitting around you. Everybody in your life has a need for grace and peace. Everybody that's in your Bible study, everybody in your friend group, everybody who eats out of your refrigerator has a need for grace and peace. If you are drinking deeply of God's grace and peace, you are best equipped to begin dispensing it. And that is, that is your challenge, that is your calling. So will you be the first to reverse something in your marriage by dispensing grace? And will you be the first in a uh, maybe a relationship of conflict to dispense grace and peace? Would you, will you realize in your, in your work situation, maybe a tough situation, that the people that you find most difficult are struggling with shame and anxiety? And what they really need is grace 
and peace. And as you have been given freely, freely give. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are coming before you as uh, anxious, guilty uh, sinners who have been transformed eternally and are being transformed into people of grace and peace. Thank you that you are the source of all grace. You are the source of all peace. And we just throw ourselves upon you in that deep need. And we pray that as you transform us uh, bit by bit, situation by situation, circumstance here and uh, a crisis there, that as you transform us, that we will become uh, models, examples, dispensers of grace and peace to a world that badly needs it. In Jesus' name, amen.